Welcome to another episode of the Miko Paled podcast. So we are switching up the format for this episode and devoting the next two to answering all the questions that our listeners have submitted to us over the course of the past month or so. So we'll be splitting up the Q&A into two parts. This obviously is up part one, and then we will be dropping part two in a couple of days to spread them apart a little bit and make that listening time a little more manageable for you. But please keep the questions coming in so that we can, do, we can be doing episodes like this in the future. Miko and I both really enjoyed doing this, and it allows us to touch on a lot of topics in a short period of time, so it's, it's a lot of fun to do these. So again, email me at booking at mikopaled.com if you have any questions for Miko. And you can also go to mikopaled.com to find all the different ways that you can follow him and get in touch and also find out about future uh, webinars and, and video streaming uh, events that Amiko has been doing in lieu of uh, real-life physical events. Lastly, if you're looking for some COVID-19 reading, going to go ahead and say pick up a copy of either of Miko's books. His first book is called The General Sun, and the second book is called Injustice. Both are available at Amazon. If you listen to the entire episode today, actually, uh, Miko drops some interesting information about what his forthcoming book will be about, and I'm not sure that he's really made that public. So there's a little uh, nugget in this episode for you if you're curious about that. And all right, on to a part one of the Miko Paled podcast Q&A with our listeners. Welcome to the Miko Paled podcast. How are you doing, Miko? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good, staying safe, staying indoors, you know, doing all, all I can do right now. Yep. So this uh, episode of the podcast uh, is special because we put a call out to your audience um, that we were going to be doing a Q&A episode. Uh, so we invited all... Everyone who follows you uh, on your social media and your website and newsletter to uh, ask whatever burning questions they have for you uh, in regards to Palestine, Israel, Middle East politics, everything that you specialize in and, you know, commit your your time and energy to. So we got a flood of questions in and we're going to do our best to address uh, a lot of these questions. And we encourage uh, the audience to keep those questions coming in. You can email me at booking at mikopaled.com or direct message any of those, or throw them in the comments. I'll keep an eye out for everything. But let's get into these questions. All right, the first question, well, actually, it's two questions um, that are very similar, and they pertain to the situation in Gaza, broadly speaking, and also in terms of COVID. So the first question is from Daniela, who lives in Brazil. And the question is, Miko, can you specifically address the situation of the Palestinians locked in Gaza, the biggest concentration camp in the world. And then the second question is from Bernadette from Canada. And this question says, hello, Miko. First off, thank you for your work to bring peace uh, in exposing the heartbreaking situation in Gaza. Can you please speak on the COVID-19 situation there? Yeah, well, great questions. Um, and thank you, everybody who sent questions. Um, this is th th These issues are on everybody's minds right now. Uh, all of us here who are, as they say, rich, free, and alive all at the same time, um, 
we're not happy, you know, being confined to our own spaces because of uh, because of this virus. But um, none of us can imagine, including myself, what it would be like to live in a place like Gaza uh, or any of the refugee camps where living conditions are incredibly crowded, where there's no access to clean water, period. And so forget the need to wash our hands all the time. There's no access to clean water to begin with, to the most basic needs under normal circumstances. So certainly it's even more critical right now with, with, with this virus that's uh, raging. Um, and uh, again, with people living in such close proximity, the, the chances of, uh, of this virus spreading quickly is, uh, are, very, are very, very high and it's very, very scary. Um, so, as, as many people know, the Gaza Strip is, is a prison, it's an open-air prison, it's a concentration camp. Some two million people living there in some of the worst conditions we could possibly imagine. Um, and it's not because they live in some remote area where there's no access to water or where they could not have access to electricity or medicine. You know, Gaza is minutes away from Israeli towns where you have the best hospitals, the best medical care, access to uh, everything, a clean water, from clean water to, to nutrition, again, to medical care and so on. Um, but this horrifying uh, reality has been imposed on the people in Gaza uh, because of the creation of the State of Israel and the ongoing policy of the State of Israel for seven decades um, which is basically a policy of racism and violence. It's an apartheid regime. And they do not want these people to be part of their state, even though these are Palestinians. And of course, many of the people in Gaza uh, come from other parts of Palestine. The majority of the people in Gaza are not from Gaza. They're refugees from other, part, other parts of the country. So their homes and their, and their land and their water and their resources are all out there, but Israel won't allow them to access them just like Israel won't allow them to access medical care, even though it's minutes away. And they're perfectly good doctors and facilities in Gaza, but they don't get the resources and they don't get the supplies that they need. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a, an incredibly serious situation, which has now become even more catastrophic, even more catastrophic. Uh, the United Nations already said that by 2020, Gaza will be uninhabitable. Well, I don't know who wrote that report, but I doubt that Gaza has ever been uninhabitable since the State of Israel was established. Uh, and the refugees were thrown in there as they, as they were uh, in the early 1950s. Now, I, I get this, I, I just received a report from the health ministry in Gaza um, about the uh, issue about on the coronavirus and COVID-19 and um, they're taking all the precautionary um, steps and measures that they need. They say that they have uh, 1,864 people who returned who came into Gaza from the outside. Um, they're quarantined in 27 different centers. Um, over a thousand of them, close to 1,100, are actually in hotels and so forth. The, uh, they've intensified the tests and the surveillance on, on people who might be sick. They are, um, the, the resources are incredibly limited, which of course is, is horrifying. They have a severe, uh, severe 
need four ventilators, of course. They need ICU units, um, and they're, um, you know, there's only the occupancy in the hospitals um, is maxed out, even though there's going to be a need for so many more hospital beds as things uh, develop, as things come up. Uh, I want to give a shout out to um, the great people who work for PCRF, Palestine Children Relief Fund. They are, um, they're constantly doing tremendous work, uh, led by my friend Steve Sosby, um, incredible work all over Palestine, but now focusing specifically on this issue. And if you'd like to help, they've got specific, uh, specific projects that are, that are, um, where they're targeting the needs in Gaza itself. Um, so please go to pcrf.net uh, and that you can see everything they do and they give you the option to donate and to help out. They're probably the most uh, active on the ground, in and out, the ability to go in and actually do things. Um, they're probably the best organization, the most accessible, accessible. And they do terrific, terrific work, and they've got a long track record and so on. So you can trust them and you can um, donate uh, knowing you're giving the money to the right people. Um, again, it's PCRF, Palestine Children Relief Fund.net. Um, and they will uh, use your money um, wisely and they'll do exactly what is needed. And they know what the needs are because they're on the ground. But this is an incredibly severe situation. Israel is not not only in Gaza, but it is not allowing, um, it, it is not, you know, allowing Palestinians access to information, access to medical care, access to water that is so crucially needed always, but particularly now. Uh, we're talking about the Gaza Strip, but I mean, this is true in the Nakab Desert. The Nakab Desert, uh, the Palestinians live in horrifying conditions. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians without access or with limited access to water limited access to electricity, um, limited access to all the resources that we take for granted, even though they are in the, in the Nakab Desert, they are citizens of the state of Israel. And they're living across the street, usually from Israeli towns that have all the resources. Some of the wealthiest Israeli towns are in the Nakab Desert. And so uh, this is true in the, in the north, in, in, in the Mutallat, in other Palestinian towns, again, where Israeli citizens reside, and there is no information. And they are not conducting tests, and they don't have data on what the, what is happening in the Palestinian towns. Again, even in within 1948, even where Palestinian citizens of Israel reside, and so um, when Israel Israel um, advertised a few days ago, put out uh, information page with the with the data in all the different cities, but only mentioned the Israeli cities. None of the Palestinian cities were mentioned. And we're talking about a population that is, uh, it, it's, it's a large population and a large percentage of the, of the citizens of Israel. So apartheid doesn't stop at the, you know, at, at, at the COVID edge, if you will, at the water's edge on this issue. Uh, the apartheid is alive and well, home demolitions continue, raids on homes continue, detention, violent detention of children uh, continues. There were clashes in Yaffa, in, in the Palestinian neighborhoods in Yaffa. Um, and so forth. So Israel is not letting, even in this crucial mo at this crucial moment, is not letting up on its on its iron fist, on on its on its apartheid mentality and its apartheid uh, policies. 
um, and not allowing Palestinians to do what needs to be done in order to save lives. Yeah, I think, you know, oppressive states like Israel will weaponize things like COVID to increase their stranglehold or try to make dealings or, or anything like that. So it's a situation that we have to monitor very closely. And the, uh, the PCRF campaign you mentioned, um, PCRF.net will also link it in the description if you just want a quick link to, to go to. And, and we'll continue to monitor that and, and release information there. All right, excellent. Well, um, the next question is from Paul in Pennsylvania. I recognize the name. This is somebody who helped organize the Chambersburg, Pennsylvania event. That's right. So hi, Paul. Um, so here's Paul's question. It's actually, he's asking a question for someone else. He's saying, an 80-plus-year-old uh, Jewish woman who attended your lecture at Wilson College is questioning who the land in question belonged to in the past. Google suggests it was in various hands going back. Yeah, well, thank you, Paul. You're right. Paul organized the two excellent lectures in a retirement community in Chambersburg. Uh, one was uh, kind of in a uh, community center, and the other one was at Wilson, Wilson College. Both of them were very, very well attended. Um, and these are seniors, and so for them, retired people, for them, this issue of COVID is, 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 is really life and death. And we just managed to have the lectures. I was just there just before this thing uh, broke out, and, and everybody had to be in isolation. So it was lucky that we had, we had scheduled it when we did. Um, you know, the, the, the question, uh, the question of who the land belonged to is kind of a funny question, actually. The land belongs to the people who live there. Um, and I usually like to refer people who ask, who ask that and similar questions to that, to a wonderful book that just came out uh, a year ago, I think, by the Palestinian historian Nurma Salha. Nurma Salha is a very well-known Palestinian historian. He teaches at SOAS at the University of London. A uh, very prestigious institute, institution. And the title of the book is Palestine, a 4,000-year history. And what he shows very, very clearly in this book, using uh, historical resources, historical sources, going all the way back to um, some of the earliest uh, Greek historians, um, that that part that piece of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, more or less, between the northern border with Lebanon and the Gulf of Aqaba, has been called Palestine consistently for close to 4,000 years. It was part of various empires, of course. It was part of different, you know, it was controlled by different um, empires, mostly, as empires came and went throughout history. Um, but it's always been called Palestine, and the people have been referred to as, as, as Palestinians. Um, and it's always been diverse, and it's always been uh, a place with great tolerance and, uh, you know, very affluent, a lot of education, you know, important education centers were always there historically in Gaza, in Yaffa, in Akka, in other places, some, you know, in Jerusalem, in and out, depending on the period. Um, and what's interesting about the book also is that it does not really, it does not it does not follow the biblical narrative. A lot of the history that we read about Palestine falls back on the biblical narrative, which is not a historical narrative. The Bible is not a book of history; it's a book of faith, and that's a very important distinction to make. He uses 
he references historical data, historical documents. Again, going back uh, almost 4,000 years. Another interesting uh, little, little anecdote. A few years ago, I visited um, uh, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's house in, in Virginia. Um, and it's a, it's a very impressive trip. It's a very, you know, the grounds are impressive, the house is impressive. But as you walk in the foyer, there's a massive map that his father, who was a cartographer, drew. It covers the entire wall. And it's a map of Africa. Now, this is Thomas Jefferson's father. Okay? And um, as you look up that map towards the east and the north, there's a strip of land. And on the entire strip of land, it says Palestine. So whether the Romans controlled it or the Greeks controlled it or the Ottomans controlled it, it was always Palestine. And it's still Palestine, uh, in my view. And I think it should be called Palestine. And um, it belongs to, to its people. And I think it's time that the people of Palestine um, are allowed to determine the fate of their own, their own fate and the fate of their, of their country. All right. Uh, the next one is a comment, uh, not a question. Uh, this is from Gerard in Bulgaria. We're getting a lot of questions from all over the globe, so this is great. Um, hello, Miko. Not a question, just a big thank you for providing such serious and irrefutable information. You're welcome. Thank you for the comment. And the next question is from Deborah. What is the status of any progressive movement in Israel itself? and among Israeli Jews. Can we hope for any internal movement to end occupation? Well, we, Israel just had its third or elections in, in, in about a year, within a, within, within a 12 month period. And so the, I think the elections in Israel are a really great indicator because Israelis vote in very high numbers. And this, this election particularly was an important one. Um, and when we look at the makeup of, or the results of the election and the makeup of the Israeli Knesset, then we know what Israelis think. Um, we see that even with his indictment and his very clear charges of corruption, Benjamin Netanyahu is still the favored leader among Israelis. Um, we can see that the number two, the guy who came in number two, which was this former IDF chief, Benny Gantz, who, by the way, used to work for Netanyahu when he was the chief of the IDF and Netanyahu was prime minister. Um, he came in second and he had the option to form a government, but he would have to rely on the parties that are that are represented in the Knesset, which are predominantly Palestinians. Um, and that would have been a stain on his life and his career that he would never be able to, clear, to, to, to wash off. So he opted, rather than become prime minister now and rely on the Palestinian uh, vote, to break up his own party, to break up his own alliance, the very alliance that got him to where he is politically, um, and join hands with Netanyahu, the man who he vowed he vowed over and over again over three uh, election campaigns that he would not sit with and that his very, the Israelis' only mission was to unseat Netanyahu. 
and he gave up the opportunity to the first, you know, historical opportunity, opportunity to be the first Israeli politician to unseat Netanyahu in over a decade. Um, and he had the possibility, the ability, the ability to do that, and he chose not to do that. He chose to go with Netanyahu, again, breaking up his own political party and uh, reneging on several promises that he made during the campaign. Um, and this also broke down the few members of the Knesset that do represent this strange combination of Zionist left, which are kind of Zionists, but they like to claim that they're a little bit more liberal. They broke apart as well, and some of them are now negotiating with Netanyahu to go into a larger coalition. So there really is no, there are no forces among Israeli Jews, uh, at least not in, in serious numbers, that we can look at and say, well, this is where hope is going to come from. This is where change is going to come from, because young Israelis vote just like old Israelis. Um, and the discourse, the political discourse, the political mentality, and I think the, 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 the psychology as well within Israeli society is racist. Um, and really the only political bloc that has proven itself, the only politicians within the Israeli political system that prove themselves to be true to their word, to hold uh, hold strong to their principles, um, to be truthful, to really have a spine, if you will, a backbone, are the members of the Joint Arab List, which is a list made of four predominantly Palestinian um, Palestinian political parties, and they are the only opposition, really, right now. They are the only opposition. It's an opposition of fifteen in a in a chamber of one hundred twenty members. Um, and I think it's, I think it's very interesting, but it's also, it represents the reality in Palestine because I get this question all the time, will young Israelis, are there progressive forces within Israel? So yes, there are some individuals who are more progressive. There are small groups that are more progressive, but they're marginal. They have no real political, uh, in terms of numbers, they have no political influence. Um, but within the framework of the joint Arab list, and there are Israeli Jews who are members, there are Israeli Jews who are part of that list. Um, that is really where hope lies. Now, add to that the fact that there are five million Palestinians who do not participate in the elections that are governed by Israel. Five million Palestinians who have no say, who do not get a chance to vote, who have no say at all in determining who is going to govern them. These are the two million Palestinians we talked about earlier who are locked up in the Gaza Strip, and three million Palestinians who are locked up in slightly different format in what used to be the West Bank. Um, and although Israeli Jews who live around the West Bank and around these Palestinian communities vote and they are full have full citizenship rights, the Palestinians who live in these areas are locked up in, in, in really in small prisons and live under military uh, under, under military rule. So these five million Palestinians are the hope. I think that when these five million Palestinians are allowed to vote, when um, the apartheid regime is forced to collapse and we have a one-person, one-vote election, that's when we're going to see a more progressive results. That's when we're going to see hope. And just going on that, I think sometimes this question is referring to progressive Israeli Jews, but I think sometimes Americans here see a rising Jewish progressivism 
happening in the last two, three years through the advent of you know, groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, and it it's, might be easy to conflate more progressive Jewish voices happening in, in the West and America with um, what's going on over there. It's, it's very different scenarios, right? That's right. Very different. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, this next question, um, it's a series of questions. Um, so I'm going to ask them individually um, rather than going all three at the same time. So this question comes from Ardita um, from Kosovo. So I am a white Caucasian Muslim living in southeastern Europe, Kosovo. First, before asking my questions, I have to thank you for all your precious work to demask de deceptions of the Israeli state. So the first part of the three part question is, do religious Jewish people who do not recognize the state of Israel get offended or persecuted by Israeli police, just like Muslim people get all the time? Do they get punished by not obeying Israeli laws? That is an excellent question, and, and the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, the anti-Zionist uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, refuse to serve in the army. Um, many of them refuse to receive any kind of payments, even they have their own independent education um, institutions. Um, but they get particularly punished uh, because of the issue of the draft. They refuse to serve in the Israeli military. And um, they stand up tens or hundreds of thousands protesting with big signs saying, we will not serve in your army. Their neighborhoods are raided by the Israeli police, by Israeli special riot police. They are trampled on by these, you know, big horses they use when they come in with the riot police. They get sprayed with the skunk water and with, um, you know, uh, all kinds of terrible things. They are beaten, they are tortured, they are arrested, they are treated um, in, in horrifying ways because they refuse to serve, because they refuse to bow down to this idol, which is the Israeli army. You know, Israel is a very militant society. And in Israel, the army is like a god. It's really, it's really like idol worship. And they refuse, and they absolutely refuse, and they get arrested, and they get once they get arrested, then more will protest, and once they protest, there's more violence. And uh, I visit uh, their neighborhoods a lot when I'm there. In fact, I'm, I'm working on a book right now about the anti-Zionist um, uh, ultra-Orthodox communities, not only in, uh, in Palestine, but also overseas. Uh, and we have a podcast coming up with uh, Rabbi... Um, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro of New York, who is who's one of the greater spoke great spokespeople for that community, but um, yeah, they get punished. They get punished horribly. They get punished horribly. This is a community that is very modest, a community that lives in in also in in um, uh, very very difficult conditions. They cherish their faith. They cherish studying their faith above anything else. They refuse to bow down to Zionism. They refuse to bow down to the state of Israel. They refuse to serve in the army. And they're absolutely uh, punished in the most severe, severe ways. I met with activists. They've got some very serious, very, very dedicated activists who are fighting for these causes that they believe in. Um, they are hunted down by the police. They're hunted down by the special forces, the special, uh, Israel has got like a special police, like a secret police. 
Um, it's a very, very difficult life that they lead, but they stand and they fight for their principles and they fight for things uh, they believe in. Uh, so the second part of the question is this. Do Jews living in Israel who support this false state get along with Jews who don't? Do they classify them as second-class citizens just like they do with Muslims living there? So I would say probably, the, you know, the larger communities that are anti-Zionist, that reject Israel, are the ultra-Orthodox Jews. Now, there are secular Israeli Jews like myself who also reject Zionism and reject Israel. We're treated, you know, we're treated just like any other Israeli Jew. You know, we live a life of privilege, there's no question. But the ultra-Orthodox Jews are... Um, do not, or, or try to minimize their contact with the state um, to really just the bare minimum. And so they do not, and they, they historically do not get along with the secular Israeli society at all. Um, the, the tensions, I would even say the hatred um, that comes from the secular Zionist Israelis towards these ultra-Orthodox, and particularly because they don't serve in the army, particularly because they reject the state of Israel, uh, the hatred is is nothing short of, of anti-Semitism. I mean, you cannot describe it as anything but anti-Semitism. Um, but when you look at Israelis like myself, that's a little bit different. Uh, the life we lead is much more, um, uh, you know, an integral part of Israeli society, even with rejecting Zionism and rejecting the military. All right, and the third and last part of uh, Artito's question is, and if the answer to these questions is positive, meaning that Jews who don't recognize the state of Israel get persecuted, have you ever felt the need to be their voice? Well, they have their own voice. I, I speak about them and I, and I, and I write about them. Uh, they don't need me. They've got a good enough voice and they know how to express themselves. I think that uh, at the same time, I would say that uh, the reason I'm writing a book about the ultra-Orthodox community, and the reason I, I like to talk about them and highlight their struggle um, is, beca <clears throat> is because it's not about their voice so much as it is about access. And the outside world is not really interested in their plight. The outside world is not really interested in what they're going through and doesn't support them. And so as much as I can, I talk about it. And like I said, I'm, I'm about to publish a book um, about this community and about their struggle. All right. Great. The question is from John, uh, and I really love this question. John asks, hi, Miko. Palestinians are regularly painted as terrorists. Do you ever ask of us in the West if we would take up arms to protect our homelands and what that would make us? It's interesting we take such pride in our war heroes, but expect others to lie down to oppression. Yeah, well, that's a very true observation. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, I think uh, there's no such thing as Palestinian terrorism. There never was. Uh, however, um, Israel has been engaged in terrorism for, oh, clearly 100 years. I mean, the attempts to, um, the successful attempts, I should say, to uh, throw Palestinians out of their homes, out of their land, uh, through terrorism, through terrorizing a, a civilian population has been going on for since, since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and they do it. And, and the interesting thing is, and it's much like you say, 
Israel, Israelis are taught every battle, every general, every commander, every unit that participated in whatever battle that may have taken place. You know, every town, every village has got some heroic story. Um, if Palestinians dare to name a street, I mean, name, name a street um, after somebody who they consider a hero, then suddenly they're supporting terrorism. Um, even though, like I said, there's no such thing as Palestinian terrorism. Palestinians are fighting uh, a fight that is com completely justifiable, completely true to the to 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 their values and to their and to and to justice, and they're fighting for justice. And so it's not terrorism. Israel uh, has been engaged, like I said, in terrorism for a very long time, and Israel is the the Israeli army is a terrorist organization, even though they wear nice uniforms and they've got the best uh, equipment on earth. They still are no more than a terrorist organization. And I think the same can be said about the U.S. military and the militaries in the West. I mean, um, they've been engaged in horrific acts of, of, of uh, criminal, uh, you know, war crimes and, and crimes against humanity, going back to, you know, genocide of the Native Americans, slavery, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Southeast Asia, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and so on. Sanctions on Iran are also, I believe, a war crime. So, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the terrorists are not the freedom fighters. They're not the people who are fighting uh, for their liberation. The terrorists are the ones who are imposing uh, racism and apartheid and violence on them. All right. Uh, the next couple questions are they didn't. Uh, this first one is, are there any current updates regarding the members of the Holy Land Foundation? Have you kept in contact with the families since the writing of your recent book? Yes, another great question. I appreciate you bringing that up. The story of the Holy Land Foundation and the book that I wrote, Injustice, um, the five men are in federal prison. Uh, they're still in federal prison. Two of them have been sentenced to 65 years, uh, Shukri Abu Bakr and Ghassan Elashi. And Mufid Abdul Qadir, 20 years, and um, Abdurrahman Ode and uh, Muhammad al Muzain, 15 years each. And in fact, I'm in touch with them right now by email in order to do a podcast with them over the phone. And it's just a little bit difficult to coordinate the timing. Uh, what they've told me is because of the outbreak of, of COVID 19, uh, there are no visitations allowed, but they so everybody's on the phone a lot more, which means it's really hard for them to get time uh, on the phone because we need to do this over the phone. So as soon as that's possible, we'll have we'll have interviews with them as well. Uh, their conditions are are terrible. I mean, they are in federal prison, and there's no way out for them unless uh, somebody is willing to take this take up this issue. Um, somebody who has influence, somebody who has clout, and, and get the president to commute their sentences to, <clears throat> um, then this is it. They're going to they're going to remain in jail for the for the rest of their uh, of their sentence. And in the two cases where it's sixty five years, they're, they're the rest of their lives. So the situation is very very severe. They are political prisoners. They realize they're political prisoners. Um, and when I'm asked, I I always say that they will be released when. The rest of the Palestinian political prisoners will be released, the ones that are sitting in Israeli jails, because there's no difference between them. And that will only happen when Palestine is free. That will only happen when the apartheid regime collapses and we have a free Palestine. 
And so if we care about these people, these five honorable, wonderful men who have been wrongly charged, wrongly convicted, and are serving uh, inexcusably and unjustifiably long prison sentences here in the United States, then we need to fight for free Palestine because these things are connected. You can't separate one from the other. It's like you're never going to be able to get an end to the siege on Gaza or ending the military rule in, in, in the West Bank over Palestinians. Nothing can ever is ever going to happen until it all happens. And so the struggle to free the Holy Land Foundation Five and the struggle to free Palestine is the same struggle. The struggle to end the siege on Gaza and the struggle to release uh, Palestinian prisoners who are held in Israeli jails is the same struggle. These are not separate struggles. And so we need to uh, fight as hard as we possibly can to bring about a free and democratic Palestine so that all these people will be free. Right. And, and just my own comment, um, you know, I'm being active in, in activism. There's a lot of solidarity campaigns and movements with political prisoners in the United States. You know, people like Leonard Peltier and Chelsea Manning, folks like that. And, and the Holy Land Foundation Five are largely absent from those conversations. And it, it's something that if anyone is involved in that type of work, we need we need to bring these folks into those broader conversations when it comes to political prisoners in the U.S. Absolutely. So, so the next question, uh, anonymous, uh, could you compare and contrast the education system for an Israeli child versus a Palestinian child? What do they learn historically? Okay, so the Israeli education system is. Um, is, is a state-run education system. But within the education system, you've got different, um, different streams. You've got the kind of the common uh, secular stream with people like myself go to regular public school. That's what you learn. Uh, you've got the uh, religious orthodox stream, which is, of course, heavily, heavily religious. Uh, you've got the ultra-Orthodox stream, which um, is mostly religious with small, you know, very, very little of what they call core subjects taught. And then you've got the Palestinian, um, the Palestinian stream, and this is for the Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. Um, so Israelis learn, you know, about their, the history of Israel. They learn about uh, battles. They learn about poets. They learn about uh, um, all these different issues that, sh that are related to Israeli culture, Israeli history, uh, and so forth. Palestinians learn the same thing. They do not learn about Palestinian history, Palestinian poets, Palestinian heritage. Um, they have to learn the Israeli stuff. Um, they need to celebrate the Israeli um, Day of Independence. They need to celebrate Israeli uh, military victories. Um, and of course, that's got to be horrifying. That has absolutely got to be horrifying. Um, because the Israeli narrative is, of course, number one, a false narrative, but it's also the narrative of the conqueror. And the Palestinians are learning the narrative of the conqueror, even though they are the ones on whose backs this, these conquests have taken place. 
Um, and then you've got the education systems that are part of the Palestinian Authority, and that's completely separate from the state of Israel. But I will say that the, the Palestinian uh, education system or curricula uh, go through uh, a lot of scrutiny. They have to be approved by the European Union, and they have to be approved by the uh, by the Israeli authorities. And if they live in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem schools have to be approved by the Jerusalem authorities. And so, what you get quite often is you get these you get these uh, textbooks where you open the page and it's blank because the Israeli authorities did not allow whatever was written in that page to be written. So it could be a Palestinian textbook, but you open a certain page, you'll have writing on one side and blank on the other. It's an, it's an absurd reality. And the funny thing is that Palestinians are always accused of teaching hate and teaching racism, whereas they couldn't possibly teach us in their textbooks because their textbooks are scrutinized and have to go through all these levels of approval, whereas the Israeli textbooks go through no approval, outside approval whatsoever. And they do teach racism, and the Israeli textbooks do teach racism. The Israeli curriculum is racist and glorifies terrorism uh, and glorifies massacres and glorifies war crimes to a degree that is sometimes hard to believe. Um, but they don't have to go through any external scrut uh, scrutiny so they can do whatever they want. Um, but that's kind of an overview of, of the different uh, education systems, all within this one small country, you know, the, w which I call, and I invite all of you to call Palestine. All right, remember to keep an eye out for part two of the Q&A episode with our audience. If you're listening to this on YouTube or on the web, we'd appreciate subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. That way, new podcast episodes will automatically download onto your device as soon as they become available. And once you do that, if you could leave us a review, we'd appreciate it because it really helps get the word out. And then we can sort of stand side by side with a lot of the other great Palestinian-centered podcasts that are out there. Please continue to get the word out about the Palestinian Children Relief Fund's COVID-19 Humanitarian Response Fund. Your tax-deductible donation will help PCRF provide humanitarian support to people at risk as well as provide medical supplies and equipment during this crisis. All you got to do is go to PCRF.net to donate or click the link in the description of the podcast. Keep asking questions and keep fighting for a free Palestine. Till next time.